Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Excellent. Well, um, there may be some people trickling in, but we'll go ahead and get started. Um, my name is Gloria Gonzalez. I am a SCJ member and a, the managing editor of Industry Dive. Uh, those of you, some of you may be familiar with Industry Dive. We cover uh, uh, a number of different industry sectors, including the utility waste and smart city sectors. Uh, those are the publications that I manage. Um, we're here to talk about market-based mechanisms. I uh, just want to get a little bit of a lay of the land. Uh, if you could just raise your hands if you have uh, covered market-based mechanisms or are familiar with market-based mechanisms. Okay, so roughly half. Um, so what we'll do is we'll do a little bit of an explainer. Um, our, my panelists here will be uh, available after the session to answer any questions that you may have. But um, essentially, we're going to talk about market-based mechanisms and economic programs that are designed to resolve environmental challenges. Um, I think most of you may be most familiar with carbon markets. Is that the sense? OK, great. Um, so we have two speak, uh, experts on the carbon markets, but there are other markets as well. Um, there are water, biodiversity, agriculture. Um, markets that and we'll talk a little bit about those markets as well. And we'll talk a little bit about uh, the market-based approach versus uh, government regulation, because I know there's a pretty uh, healthy debate about what mechanisms or programs are, are best able to resolve these environmental challenges. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little out of breath. The altitude here has really gotten to me. <laughs> Every time I get up here, I'm a little bit, uh, little bit out of breath. Um, Anyway, um, so we're going to talk a little bit about these markets, and uh, I first want to introduce my first panelist, Toby Jansen-Smith, who is with, with Vera. Um, Toby's going to give us a little bit of an explainer about the markets, and he's going to tell you a little bit about his organization and what they do. Um, in the carbon markets, I guess you're most known for carbon, but you also do other types of mechanisms as well, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Thank you, Gloria. Great to be here with you and the other great panelists. Thanks for uh, coming. Uh, it'll hopefully be an interesting discussion. Um, so I lead innovation for a, a nonprofit called Vera. We're a independent standard setter, probably best known for our carbon work. We manage the verified carbon standard, uh, which is for carbon accounting and crediting. We also have standards for sustainable development, agricultural sustainability, and most recently uh, starting to create a market-based mechanism to uh, incentivize increased waste or plastic waste uh, recovery and recycling. So there's certainly, as Gloria said, lots of potential for market mechanisms um, to address different environmental challenges. Um, but as the um, footnote of the panel says, the devil is in the details. Um, so just to say uh, a few words about, <coughs> excuse me, to frame up what market-based mechanisms are and maybe give a few examples and some other context. Um, so basically, a market-based or an environmental market-based mechanism is a, um, an instrument or a mechanism that uses markets, price, or some other economic variable to incentivize polluters to um, address environmental externalities. 
So, you know, that's kind of sounds complicated in practice. Um, as Gloria mentioned, probably carbon markets and emissions trading schemes, cap and trade programs, those are probably the best, the most best known. And probably the kind of one of the great grandfathers of market-based mechanisms was in the 90s, 1990s under the Clean Air Act with the, um, uh, with the Cle um, acid rain program where um, sulfur dioxide permits could get traded amongst power generators. Um, and that was a very successful program uh, that by you know, most analysis of it has shown that it met the environmental goal way ahead uh, of target and uh, billions of dollars under estimated costs compared to a, a command and control type regulatory approach. So that in many ways kind of spurred a lot of um, uh, folks, policymakers and implementers to think how could similar approaches be applied to other environmental challenges and climate became, you know, sort of the, one of the big areas where these approaches have been uh, deployed um, all around the world, starting with perhaps the clean development mechanism under the Kyoto Protocol um, that allowed all countries to kind of trade um, emission reductions and especially from the developing countries. It was a way of driving climate finance to the developing world that, uh, that didn't have caps, so they otherwise wouldn't have a way of addressing some of these environmental issues. Um, European Emissions Trading Scheme, uh, I think still is the biggest um, carbon market, is that right, Craig, still? Yes. EU ETS. So that's you know a good example with a lot of history. That's a great one to look at in terms of the devil being in the details. This, it's gone through a bunch of different cycles where you know prices have collapsed um, or, or you know sunk low in part because of the success of the program and other interventions. Um, but that created some problems. You know this, this, the system is doing pretty well now. And then within that, there's countries like the UK that's done very well because it had um, in terms of impacts because it had different um, price floors and different sub-approaches under the ETS that served it well. So, yeah, the EU ETS is a great example of kind of, you know, how to design things, what to watch out for uh, to get the intended um, uh, impact. And then, um, uh, let's see, what else? Um, Corsia is maybe some people have heard of, uh, is another big one that's going to be, uh, you know, probably um, potentially, uh, you know, very innovative in terms of its approach, and that's under the UN really to look at uh, its course here, which is the carbon offset, um, uh, carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation. And the idea there is that uh, the airlines have all committed, or the Industry Association or ICAO, Civil Aviation Authority, has basically um, committed to making all um, uh, air, air, um, air flight, um, all flights. All, all the growth in the aviation industry post 2020 to be carbon neutral. So basically carbon neutral growth. They can't get to that through internal reductions. So for example, biofuels or you know other uh, approaches to reduce emissions um, from the aircraft. It's the technologies aren't there to do it at scale. So offsets are gonna be a very big part of that to achieve carbon neutrality for their growth. And so they're designing it right now. So our respective organizations, um, Climate Action Reserve and VERA, actually just next week are gonna be talking to the policymakers um, there uh, under Corsia who are very interested in using independent standards as a way of making sure that the kinds of offsets that are used have um, rigor, um, they're comparable, and they maintain uh, environmental um, integrity. So anyway, that's a, a little bit um, overall. And then just maybe to, to end on Gloria's comment about it, you know, market-based mechanisms going beyond um, carbon, 
people may be familiar in the U.S., for example, nutrient trading programs um, in different areas, different states. Wetlands mitigation banking is another good example. Um, and then we're working on things like I mentioned, plastic waste recovery uh, and recycling. Uh, a mechanism to drive finance into the developing world where there's a lot of these plastic waste hotspots, there's no finance to develop infrastructure or to clean up the waste. And a market-based mechanism could be a great way to actually drive finance and action into those regions and to actually measure impact in a, you know, a meaningful, robust way. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit um, framing up. That's great. Thank you, Toby. Uh, Craig, do you want to uh, tell us a little bit about your work with the Climate Action Reserve and uh, the carbon markets? Sure. Thanks, Gloria. Uh, my name is Craig Ebert. I am president of the Climate Action Reserve. We're based in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, and our mission is to bring market-based solutions to address climate change. So you can imagine where I come down on the question of, of the use of market-based mechanisms, uh, which I think are fundamental to addressing the climate challenge, and I'll get into that in, in a few moments. Uh, just a quick background on, on what we're currently doing. As, as Toby mentioned, we are a, a, an offset project registry approved by the state of California to support its cap-and-trade program. So, you know, we've been instrumental in developing, uh, uh, you know, most of the compliance protocols that California uses for its cap and trade program. Uh, and, and so we help serve that compliance market. We also operate a voluntary offset registry across the U.S. Uh, using a number of, of uh, approved proto offset protocols for the voluntary market. We have five protocols that we've developed for the Mexico market, uh, and uh, in one area that's getting a huge amount of traction lately is, is on the forestry side, uh, and we hope to have our board approval of our first uh, Canadian protocol next week uh, uh, for Canadian grasslands. Uh, I was hoping if this had happened uh, uh, you know, two years ago, we were in the midst of doing all of the offset protocols for Canada. We were contracted to uh, the province of Ontario, they had something called an election, and Doug Ford got elected, killed the cap-and-trade program, killed the offset uh, contract, so Canada is still waiting in the wings for that. It, one of the questions here about the use of market-based mechanisms, and my comments will, of course, stress it around the issue of climate change, is you know, we are not going to have any hope of addressing the climate change problem without the use of market-based solutions. But it's, to me, the question is not whether it's uh, a market-based solution versus, a, say, a command and control uh, approach by government. This is such a serious problem. We need all of the above. But I don't think we'll get to a satisfactory solution in, in any reasonable amount of time. I'm going to put reasonable in quotes because we're out of time, quite frankly. Uh, and to me, that's one of the most fundamental takeaways all of us should have today. Uh, we hear it regularly, but the scientists are telling us that uh, basically we have to turn down global greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, uh, be on the downhill slide to decarbonize the world by 2030. Uh, and we are such a far cry from there. The benchmark for dangerous human-induced impact on the climate system is 1.5 degrees centigrade. We're a little over one degree already. The Paris Agreement uh, signed in 2015, even if fully implemented, would get us to maybe 3.4 degrees, and it's not going to be fully implemented. I mean, we happen to live in a country where uh, the U.S. walked away from that agreement, uh, which is hardly an auspicious development. 
And the reality of it is, is we are going to be dealing with some serious impacts of climate change. And if we are going to have any hope of addressing it, we need to be sending the signal to the market, to the emitters out there, that they have to address it. And I, I think in, you know, the cause for optimism is sort of embedded in, in some of the lessons we've learned so far from market-based solutions. It's a complex problem, but let's break it down into just some fundamental solutions, one of which is we need to uh, green the electricity grid. You know, places like California are doing that. Uh, it's something worldwide we, we need to do a lot more aggressively. Uh, the economics certainly uh, look very attractive. You can build uh, a new wind farm or a solar PV farm for less than the cost of operating an existing coal plant. Why aren't we doing that to a lot more uh, sufficient scale? You know, and, and, and one of the reasons we're even at that stage today, you know, Toby mentioned the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol. That had a lot of problems with it, but I will argue that one of the outgrowths of that development was uh, basically making sure that renewables are now economic in today's world. You know, we had many countries investing in renewables under the CDM, creating you know uh, carbon credits under that system. Uh, and as I said, there are a lot of problems with it. But what we've learned is that we drove down the costs. A lot of countries got more familiar with it, and now we've got a very competitive solution set there. The other challenge, of course, is on the, you know, how do we green our transportation network? We don't have any easy solutions there, but the market is responding right now and putting billions upon billions of dollars into uh, hydrogen vehicles or electric vehicles, whatever the solution is going to be. And while we needed those solutions yesterday, they're coming to market. And that's not driven by, you know, government edict by any stretch of the imagination. Just want to mention one other thing that I think is critical for the market, and that's land-based solutions. You know, we hear a lot of talk about one way to slow the rate of climate change is to uh, learn how to, you know, capture CO2 and store it in some way in the deep ocean or what have, have you. Uh, and there's a lot of research going on in that space. But there's one thing humans know how to do that uh, will absorb a heck of a lot of carbon, and we need it, and that's major reforestation efforts around the planet. Uh, not what we're witnessing right now, where they're going up in flames in and, and, and a variety of different contexts, or it's encroaching civilization, urbanization, what have you. But we need a massive Marshall-type plan to reforce and absorb a lot of carbon, uh, and that in and of itself will provide a lot of ecosystem benefits. So as you might imagine, I'd, I think market-based solutions are fundamental to solving the climate change problem. We're out of time, and we need to amp them up uh, uh, by several orders of magnitude. Thank you. Thank you, Craig. Um, Mackie, can you tell us a little, little bit about the work you do at EDF with these types of programs? Hey, everyone. Thank you. Um, Maggie Manis, I'm with the Environmental Defense Fund. I'm a senior manager on our working lands team. Um, and uh, for anybody not familiar with EDF, we're a large um, international nonprofit environmental advocacy group. Um, our motto is finding the ways that work. So we're solutions oriented and we uh, try to harness the power of science and economics to develop solutions to some of the world's most pressing challenges, including climate change, um, but also fisheries, um, human health issues, um, and where I work on working lands. Um, so, you know, my work broadly is focused on um, conservation incentives in large-scale agriculture and figuring out how to incorporate the real value of environmental protection into private sector decision-making and also policy. Um, and I think, you know, these land-based solutions, that's 
Um, when we're thinking about markets, that's one of the more challenging areas to work. Um, quantification is is tougher. We're also talking about you know vast swaths of land, obviously controlled by many small actors who have um, who are influenced by financial considerations, but also other cultural and behavioral considerations. Um, and so I think there are a lot of specific considerations when we're talking about managing the land where um, um, conservation incentives or market-based mechanisms, um, like we said, the devil's in the details. <laughs> um, I typically think of incentives as a broader umbrella than markets. You know, I think of markets as um, exchanges between buyers and sellers of kind of discrete defined um, uh, environmental credits, um, whereas incentives can come in the form of supply chain sustainability, you know, financial institutions incorporating the value of environmental protection um, into their decision making in new ways, um, and even proactively creating new or modified products um, that support farmers or landowners who adopt conservation practices, um, and also different ways of structuring public policy to finance conservation in a more cost-effective way. Um, so I see this as you know, a really broad umbrella of lots of different um, methods to you know, create a system that supports farmers and landowners in achieving the environmental outcomes that um, we all need to see while also maintaining um, their own livelihoods. Um, and so, you know, I think maybe I'll leave off there, um, but I think there, you know, there are a lot of um, ways to affect this change. And, you know, the only other thing I want to say is that, um, you know, right now we already have a system of markets and incentives that are driving um, our agricultural system towards, you know, specific outcomes, you know, maximizing your yield, um, growing more, that's the only way for farmers to make more money is to grow more. Um, and, you know, that squeezes out habitat, that often leads to um, degradation of water um, and air. Um, and so I think, you know, the solution is figuring out how to rework that entire system. Um, so that will require both public policy and also private action. Um, and, you know, we need both of those in order to support farmers in making that shift. Thank you, Maggie. Uh, Scott, can you tell us a little bit about your work at sure. Food and Water Watch? <clears throat> yep, sure. Thanks. Thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Scott Edwards. I'm uh, the head of the legal department at Food and Water Watch, so I'm in charge of all of our um, litigation efforts and other legal policy efforts. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit before I start on, on the issue about what Food and Water Watch's approach is, because I think it in part drives um, what our views are on market-based mechanisms to control pollution, what we call generally pollution trading. And it is a very complex subject, and I think you've heard a lot of, of, of variations in how these things are implemented. So this is not an easy issue, and it's not an issue that can be covered in, in just the few minutes we have. So um, I'm going <clears> to <throat> talk about some examples that we've encountered. Um, if I start to ramble, just grab the mic and take it away from me. But. Um, <laughs> You know, we, we, um, our organization is built on a, on a premise. I, I'm a lawyer, but I work for an organization that's built on organizing, right? Political organizing, building political power. Um, we work for system change, right? And we look at our current um, energy systems, our food systems, our water systems as being fundamentally broken because of a breakdown in our political structure and, and who has power in our political structure. So that informs and drives what our policies are, right? It is the need to rebuild political power 
and to take back our government and to force the policies that we need to have in place to fix all of our broken systems. Um, those, are the, those are the types of things, <clears throat> excuse me, that we looked at. We worked on banning fracking in New York several years ago. When we banned fracking in Maryland, um, when we fight off water privatization efforts throughout the Northeast and New Jersey and the Northwest, um, when, we, when we take on industrial ag systems. Um, and, and so that's, that's what informs us, that's what drives us. Um, I am uh, on, a, on a different view on market-based mechanisms. We, we oppose them. Um, and, and we don't believe that the marketplace should play a strong role or perhaps any role in addressing our fundamental problems like climate change, like the nutrient pollutions coming out of industrial ag. And you know, I don't, I don't say this lightly. We've, we've thought hard about these things. We've done research. Again, this is a very tough issue, and we respect the views of other people. This isn't, we're not being dismissive. Um, everybody should have a voice here, and I appreciate the voices that we hear. Um, we, we've approached this, and, and I've sort of put down four thoughts about why, why um, we take the position we do. Number one, we haven't seen in our review of market-based mechanisms, and I focus mostly on, to be clear, climate, um, which are you know, CO2 or CO2E emissions and, and nutrients um, in, in the water pollution um, sector. Um, we haven't seen a lot of success on, under market-based programs. Um, you know, we've looked deeply at things like the, um, what's held out as a model for a carbon tax, the British Columbia carbon tax. Um, we've seen emissions, and we've done a, a very thorough report on the British Columbia carbon tax in 2016, where we pulled the data, crunched it. We saw in, from 2008 to 2014, the, the tax was in effect up till 2012. We, we got that up to 2014, that carbon emissions went up in British Columbia under the carbon tax. Um, we've, we've looked at um, programs like the Pennsylvania Nutrient Trading Program, which has been in place for um, 14 years now, I believe, it was 2005. And we, we cr again, crunched all the data, looked at all the regulations. Um, Pennsylvania is the only Chesapeake Bay state with a fully developed pollution trading program. And it's, it, we don't think it's any coincidence that it's also the largest source of nutrients to the Chesapeake Bay, despite the fact that they've been doing pollution trading. Um, we can talk about REGI and, and, and um, some of the things we've looked at with the regional greenhouse gas initiative up in the Northeast and why that's not been addressing climate. They talk about CO2 emissions. They ignore methane. They purposely ignore methane. And they've driven a shift from coal to natural gas and just counted CO2 and claim a victory. It's not been a victory. We've, again, we've, we've crunched the data. Um, you know, the acid rain program, I think, has been the poster child for a successful cap-and-trade program. And I will concede that under the, the, cal the uh, acid rain program, emissions did go down. Whether it's attributable to the, to the cap-and-trade program hasn't been firmly established. We know that EPA now says that a big chunk of those emissions reductions in SOX was because of, before the program began, a shift to very low sulfur Powder River Basin coal, which accounts for about a million tons of SO2 reduction. But, but putting that aside, um, when you compare that from 1990 to 2001, the SO2 program, the acid rain program here, resulted in 39% reductions in SO2. Um, at the same time, the EU and Japan were implementing 
what, what you refer to as command and control regulations on SO2 and achieved 78% reductions and 81% reductions, respectively, right? So two to three times the amount of reductions. Um, but again, so we're not, we don't see these market programs, especially when we talk about climate, right? The existential threat, the need to address this now to, to achieve massive reductions in the short term, um, market mechanisms as being a driver or, or a way to get to where we need to go. Um, and then some will say, well, okay, but it's a tool, right? It, it's one of many approaches, and we've heard you know, panelists say um, we can do it with other mechanisms. And this leads to my second point is, and I'll, and I'll answer this, I think, more in the Q&A later, is what we've seen, particularly in the California cap-and-trade program when we looked at it, is some of these mechanisms can act as blocks to the real solutions that we need to have in place. In 2017, the California cap-and-trade program was put back into the legislature to be renewed because it was set to expire. Um, despite a report in 2016 that showed the program was resulting in increased emissions of pollutants into communities of color because of the purchase of credits, despite that fact, that, that very significant environmental justice impact, um, that program was re-upped. And if it hadn't been, what would have kicked in in place is just as a restrictive program that managed source by source reductions instead of a cap and trade program. So you would have had the same reductions, but without the environmental injustices that resulted from the California cap and trade program that continue to today. The reason it was re-upped was because of revenue. And so Governor Brown and industry and a lot of environmental groups got on board because they got used to the revenue that was being raised by these market-based systems. Um, that's an example of where it's a roadblock to what we really think should be happening. Um, uh, just, uh, yeah. okay. Craig, I don't know if you want to respond to some of those comments with regard to California's program. Just I would love to. Oh, <laughs> sure. There you go. Uh, again, it's Craig Ebert. Uh, the question was asked, he was citing uh, the, the environmental justice study claiming that uh, the cap-and-trade program was uh, leading to increases or uh, ongoing health issues in a lot of these uh, poor communities. It is just flat-out wrong and misunderstands what the program is about. Greenhouse gases are not creating these local health problems. It also misunderstands the economics of how a uh, cap-and-trade program works. I'm very sympathetic to the uh, environmental justice people who are concerned about the increase in asthma cases, but the data also shows that for the last couple of decades, the local pollutants have been uh, falling precipitously around a lot of these areas. And we're not talking about greenhouse gases, we're talking about noxious fumes and, and particulate matter and, and, and what have you that can obviously affect health. You know, but you know, CO2 in particular uh, doesn't have that, that impact, and, and most greenhouse gases do not. Furthermore, what's often for, you know, lost about the discussion with, uh, with offsets is that you know, of all the offsets that have been used in the state of California, the projects in California, 75% of them come from, are based in economically disadvantaged communities, and fully half of them are based in environmental justice communities. You know, what that re report is, is pushing back on is, is, is it's a political dynamic in the state of California. The urban EJ folks uh, could care less, frankly, whether the, uh, the, uh, the rural uh, environmental justice groups uh, are getting any benefit or, or not about it. Because a lot of those uh, offset projects are out in the Central Valley or in Northern California. Uh, they're not in downtown Oakland or South L.A. 
But the notion that, uh, and I'm happy to go into the specifics of the economics, but the cap-and-trade program is not preventing those, those local reductions. That's a failure of, of local will to address the, uh, the, the specific emission pathways that are creating those problems. Um, Toby Jensen-Smith with Vera. Um, thanks, Greg. And thanks, Scott. A good uh, provocative start here to get the conversation going. Yep. <laughs> you know, I, I think just to add one other point is, um, you know, you mentioned in, in California that without the cap and trade, uh, the same environmental goals could be achieved. I think that's definitely a question mark in, in most of these markets. But in particular, state California, according to their resources board, the regulators there, there was a very strong um, sense and based from all their research that they could not achieve the environmental goals that they wanted without a market mechanism. And the reason being that you know, this is where market-based, as you said, then they're just one tool amongst many. And we do have to be very careful that they're used in the right way and they're designed right. And so there's plenty of examples where that isn't the case. So, you know, I, I definitely need to, to recognize that. But in the case of California, um, the, the adoption or deployment of market-based mechanism allowed enough flexibility so that economically and from a business kind of interest perspective or you know fighting regulation perspective, it enabled the state to set more aggressive targets. At least that's what Air Resources Board has claimed. Um, and in a must, much less, you know, it achieved the same environmental goals with less economic disruption to employment, industry, et cetera, and also drive innovation. And I think, you know, for all of us here who care about, you know, the environment, that for me is the big question is what's the best way to get to that environmental goal? And as, as um, Craig said, we're facing some pretty intense um, challenges here. Um, and if we can get there through these flexible approaches in a more efficient, cost-effective way, then for me, that's a win. And I think in California, the case could be made that that, that actually um, was the case, um, that more aggressive targets were able to set because they used a flexible mechanism than a com command and control approach. Um, one thing that I just wanted to add is, you know, Scott, you noted the revenue being raised from some of these market-based programs. Um, we just completed a, a report looking at innovative approaches by different states to finance agricultural conservation. Um, and one of the approaches that we highlighted is these kind of double dividend um, opportunities where you're essentially taxing something that's negative for the environment, like um, greenhouse gas emissions or a pesticide fee, and then using that to fund some of the beneficial practices. So, for example, in California, they have um, some of the revenues from the, um, the auctioned allowances are going into their Healthy Soils program. So you're essentially, hopefully, getting two times the benefit. You know, you're having the market signal that's reducing the, um, the p primary pollutant, and then you're using those revenues to fund um, sometimes some of those projects that are that are tougher to fit into a market framework, um, like agricultural product projects where you know they're complex um, and sometimes it can be difficult to parse out some of the different environmental benefits of those. But we know that if you're you know helping to fund specific practices, that produces a, a benefit overall. Let's talk a little bit more about the government regulatory approach versus market mechanisms. I think, Craig, you mentioned earlier that you saw a role for both. Um, so maybe you want to talk a little bit about that, how you see that working in terms of market-based mechanisms perhaps coexisting with government regulation. 
Well, I think Toby was highlighting it, just to use again California as a case study. The California Air Resources Board scoping plan is a combination of, of a variety of different strategies, one of which is, is the cap and trade program. But they've got a renewable portfolio standard, they've got a low carbon fuel standard, there's a variety of other strategies that they put in place. So it's a real mix of of different approaches to trying to contend with the climate change problem. Uh, and they've intentionally uh, used the, the cap-and-trade program essentially the swing strategy. Uh, if they're meeting targets, as they currently are with, with 2020, they haven't felt the need to crank down on the severity of the, of the cap-and-trade program. Uh, their plan, and we'll have to see if they implement it, going towards 2030, those targets are going to be that much more stringent to get 40 percent below 1990 levels by 2030 they may have to increase the severity of the cap. So that's the way California is doing it, but it is a, a blend of strategies. And, you know, there's a, a it, and that's why I say, it, you know, it, it's not as if it's an either or situation. And again, just given, as I said at the outset, given the severity of the climate change challenge, you know, we need to have that sort of, of suite of, of strategies employed uh, uh, at the same time. If we leave it now to just government action, we're never going to get there. I mean, just look at around at this country right now. I, I, you know, I realize we've got, we got an administration in Washington that uh, views it as a Chinese hoax when we talk about climate change. But they killed the clean power plan. They've exited the Paris Agreement. Uh, you know, if the clean power plan had gone through, estimates from EPA were that probably three quarters of the states would have implemented a market-based solution as their main way to address this, uh, the clean power plan. Well, that didn't happen. Maybe it'll come back. But you know, you know, again, it, it's. The, we need to be sending the message uh, that to the market, to all of us, that carbon has a serious cost. And my concern with, with you know, one, waiting for command and control approaches, and then waiting for the wisdom of our legislators to figure out exactly the right pathway to get there, is never, it's not going to come to fruition in any reasonable amount of time. Indeed. Hey, uh, Scott, did you want to uh, offer some thoughts on that question? Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> So, um, in the in the role of, of regulation, um, you know, we 50, 40, some odd years ago passed in, in one decade a series of regulatory, statutory programs: the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Resource Conservation. Reg oh, Scott Edwards, Food and Water. Sorry, I'm supposed to repeat my name here. Um, a whole host of, of statutory mandates that didn't include market mechanisms. And they have been wonderful success stories in many sectors, right? They've cleaned up, uh, not perfectly, but have done a real good job on power plants, wastewater treatment plants, um, air emissions, um, uh, water emissions of, of many different kinds, right? That was a command and control system that we are now moving away from and replacing with market-based systems. The idea of market-based systems to replace these command and control statutory provisions was not a progressive idea. It was a conservative idea that started to be introduced by folks that wanted to get away from regulation. It was an anti-regulatory approach, right? Because they knew that they can manipulate numbers if you if you move away from regulation and stringent mandates of, for reduction. Um, there's a reason why 
ExxonMobil is in favor of a carbon tax and not regulation. Because for Exxon, they know they can do business as usual under a carbon tax. They pass it through to the consumer. Um, you know, the the uh, gasoline is a very market inelastic commodity. It doesn't respond well to market shifts. So I, you, you can all recall when, um, you know, at least I did in New York, right, a few years ago was paying I was paying $4 or near $4 for a gallon of gas. Now I'm paying $2.75. It will go up again. There has not been a big shift in gas consumption in this country despite very significant shifts in gasoline prices. So if we put a, a, a $50 a ton carbon price on, that's about 50 cents at the gas pump. Right? I don't know anybody who's going to pull up to a gas pump and not fill up their car. Yeah, I'm not discounting that there will be some consumer reaction to increased gas prices. Will they be enough to, to shift where we need to go? We haven't seen any indication that that's going to happen, right? So we, we've seen a successful history of, of mandated reductions. We know how to reduce pollutants, right? Mercury was brought up yesterday, right? I remember when, you guys remember when George Bush recommended a, a cap-and-trade program for mercury back in 2005, I guess it was, the clean air mercury rule. The entire environmental community rose up as one and said, this is insane. You can't do cap-and-trade for mercury. And we fought it in court. We went to court, and we got that rule struck down. Um, now this administration wants to pull back on that, right? Um, so we knew back then that cap and trade was wrong for, for mercury. Um, and, and we haven't, or I haven't abandoned that ideal. I believe that the way to control mercury is through strict standards. Uh, mercury kills children. Climate's killing this planet. Let's do the same thing we did for mercury and let's regulate it. I don't think anybody in here, I understand you did the, this at, at Flint last year. Was it last year you did it at Flint? Um, Imagine if somebody recommended putting a price on lead. Let's figure out how much a lost IQ point a child is worth, and then let's put a price on lead and let the marketplace figure out how much lead should be in our drinking water. Nobody would be in favor of that. I don't think anybody, I don't think my fellow panelists would be in favor of that either. It's just not, from my perspective, the right way to attach, uh, to attack our pollution problems. Maggie, did you uh, have any thoughts on this? Well, I wanted to add on what Craig was saying, um, noting that um, it's not always in the political cards to have the, um, you know, the ideal policy. And so a lot of the work that EDF is doing is to figure out how we can advance the ball on environmental issues, um, even when we don't have the full um, policy portfolio that we need in place. Um, so two that I wanted to highlight, and, and it's interesting, you know, as we talk about internalizing externalities, um, policy is one major uh, external forcer that can cause people to have to, you know, incorporate the value of environmental protection into the way that they do business. Um, but we're seeing some other ones as well that are um, becoming very important. So one is consumer pressure. Um, you know, it's, we look at the food sector, it's being massively disrupted by millennial moms like me who care about where their food came from and how it was grown and what its impacts were. Um, and all of the major food companies are grappling with this and figuring out what they have to do. Um, and so, you know, this during my career at EDF, I've seen a massive change on this from companies saying, 
no, no, like we can't do anything in commodity supply chains to now, you know, all the major food, com most of the major food companies are, um, are acknowledging that they have to take responsibility for their full supply chains. They're setting goals. Many of them are good science-based targets. Um, and then they're figuring out how to make those changes throughout their supply chains. Um, that's, uh, you know, a major area that EDF has been involved in, you know, for example, our collaboration with Walmart, um, you know, we um, worked with them to set a goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in their supply chain um, by a gigaton. That's equal to the annual emissions of Germany. Um, we've also, um, you know, in uh, another area that I wanted to um, note is, um, as one of those external forcers, is um, better accounting. Um, I think that we tend to think that like businesses, you know, they have their accountants, they know all the numbers, they're optimizing, and that's just not always the case, and it's often not the case. Um, so we've done a lot of work, you know, with farmers and accountants trying to understand how the value of conservation flows through their budgets. And we found that there's a real gap in terms of the, the quality of their record keeping. Um, and a lot of times, you know, we talk a lot about the the current situation of the farm economy, which is really bad, um, and, and worry, you know, how can we expect farmers to adopt conservation practices during this time? Um, and we see that actually there's a lot of room for improvement in their, in their budgets and that, um, you know, often they're not optimizing and they're not recognizing the value of conservation and how they can improve and save, um, save costs throughout their budgets nor are, um, even more so than the farmers, um, are their financial partners. So that's a big area of work for us, is working with um, the crop insurance industry, with agricultural lenders, with supply chain companies, with others, is trying to figure out what is the financial value of environmental protection, and how do you incorporate that into your decision making in the way that you um, you run your business? Um, and so, you know, as tech improves and as we're better able to incorporate data into the way that um, businesses are, are managing their decision making, I think that we're seeing that even in the absence of policy, which we do need, um, companies are beginning to make progress in this area, and that's an, an area where we're really trying to push and make progress. Okay. We're going to get into the question and answer session in a little bit, but Toby, did you want to respond to yeah, that? Yeah, thanks, Maggie, and thanks, Scott. Um, yeah, just to respond to a few things um, you said, Scott, was, yeah, you know, absolutely, there can be bad policies and bad market mechanisms, or more often just too weak. Uh, you know, so command and control, you could have the same problem, right, where it's, it's just, it's set, it's not aggressive enough to tackle the environmental problem. You have the same thing with market mechanisms or the same risk. Um, but I think that, uh, and, and that comes down to, you know, in a cap and trade, for example, setting a tight enough cap. So you, you gave the example of lead and should we let the market decide. One of the powerful things about, you know, cap and trade systems and those sorts of market mechanisms, you, you can set what you want the pollutant level to be, and then the market works underneath that. So it's un unlike a carbon tax or most regulation where you're maybe setting setting a price on carbon or defining a specific set of activities the industry has to do. With a cap and trade, you actually will say, we, we want lead or CO2 or whatever the pollutant is to get to this level. And you can be assured through the system it will get to that level. But then you have to be mindful you're ratcheting down as far and fast as possible. You have to figure out whether there's risks within the nature of a market mechanism, like um, where the credits become too low to drive meaningful change. We saw that in the UETS. And a good counterpoint to that was the UK that set a $25 um, price floor. 
for the, the allowances. And as a result, I drove much deeper, faster reductions. And now the UK is down to its emissions of um, CO2 emissions of 1890, you know, which is remarkable. You can't attribute it all to the, the market mechanism, but people say that the design of that played a key role in it achieving um, those objectives. Great, thank you. Um, so we're going to open it up to Q&A. Um, as always, SCJ members and working journalists first. Um, please ask your question directly. No speeches. I will cut you off. <laughs> any, any questions? Yep. Can you repeat the question and, and identify yourself? Sure. Scott um, Edwards from Food and Water Watch. And the question was um, uh, whether I see the Pennsylvania nutrient trading program as causing Pennsylvania's large contribution to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, I'd probably flip that and say that I see the um, Pennsylvania's nutrient trading program as obviously not solving the state's nutrient pollution problem. Um, and, and the way that that program is designed is third-party brokers go out to these facilities. They, they they do all the design of the best management practices. They do all the verification. The state's really not involved except for checking off what, what is handed to them. Um, and, and, you know, Maggie talked about increased accountability. It's, it's hugely critical if you do adopt these programs. There, there is no accountability from what we've seen in the Pennsylvania Nutrient Trading Program. And, and I, I just want to say that the, the, one of the hard parts about nutrient trading for me is that we, we've, we've had these Clean Water Act point source success stories for many decades now. We've struggled with ag. We have struggled on how to deal with ag. It, it is, they are the largest polluter of our waterways, nitrogen and phosphorus from ag. Um, so what we're doing now with nutrient trading pollution is, or nutrient um, pollution trading is Instead of taking the lessons we've learned on the industrial point source side and attaching them to ag and saying, you need to operate like the rest of them do, mandated reductions, monitoring, edge of field monitoring, all these kinds of things to ensure you're complying. Instead of doing that, what we're doing is we're taking our failed approach to ag, voluntary measures, not accountability, not measuring, not monitoring, and we're shifting it over to the point source sector and saying to a power plant, you can buy credits now from, an, from a factory farm to, to discharge pollution. And, and me as a lawyer who used to sue power plants and still do for violating their permits, now I can't sue them anymore because I don't know where their credits came from or whether they're actual reductions. I say you, you, you blew out your permit and they hold up a fistful of credits and say, no, I bought a bunch of credits. And I said, well, where are those credits? How do I know that that was actual reduction? I don't know. My ability to enforce now is gone. Um, and so that's, I think, the, the, one of the big drawbacks for me. In the really shortly, and I'll let Maggie talk can, more can about Can you repeat that. the question, please? Yep. Um, Scott Edwards, again, the, the question was about um, the Ohio River Basin nutrient trading program that's being implemented with the Electric Power Research Institute, EPRI. Um, uh, yeah, we've been following that program. Again, we haven't seen successes. And, and, you know, nutrient trading folks will tell you that it's too early to tell. I mean, these are long-term pollutants. It takes time, right? They'll tell you that that's too, too early to see successes. Um, in terms of accountability, we don't see accountability. There is no the, – the reduction on the credit-generating ag side is all done through modeling and predictions about what best management practices might give you and what they might not. So it's not monitored in the way that point source um, pollution is. Um, um, but, but we are seeing, instead of increasing accountability, 
the Trump administration just put out a new nutrient trading policy that lessens accountability on the, on the nutrient um, generation side. So, and I don't want to go on and on, but Maggie, I'm sure I said that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think you're totally right. Water quality trading has struggled. And um, uh, I think a lot of that is due to, you know, we're trying to fit um, non-point source trading into a framework that wasn't originally designed for that. So yes, like point source trading has been effective. Um, and we have struggled to figure out how non-point sources can can fit in there, um, and and I would you know point that back to some of the underlying regulations if they're not strong enough to drive demand for the credits. That that's the major area that we've seen is um, is that there isn't. Um, if you don't have demand for the credits that it's going to pay farmers enough to actually implement the practices, then you're not going to have uptake. Um, I think that is a much uh, bigger core challenge to markets than um, I think accountability is critical. I do think we're making strides there, um, especially as you know tech catches up um, and and makes it easier to um, measure what the impacts are of non-point source practice implementation. Um, I do uh, disagree, Scott, on kind of the premise that um, farms should be treated the same as industrial point sources. Um, I think you know there may be some places where that's where that's appropriate, but by and large, as a sector, um, I just think that's kind of the wrong frame to view land managers um, from. You know, I think we think of you know I would consider you know farming and land management more like we think about fisheries. You know, it's um, there's there are communities, there are cultures um, that are kind of embedded in this. It's very diffuse. Um, a lot of times they don't have the same kind of technical savvy that a, um, you know, that an industrial operation might. Um, and so there's certainly an important role for regulation, but we also have to think about how are we actually going to make the changes that need to happen and who's going to pay for it. And there has to be some form of revenue to support farmers in making that shift. A lot of these changes that we're talking about are not simple um, because you know there you know maybe there's some um, kind of uh, you know baseline stuff with nutrients that we can think about that you could imagine a context where they're regulated but things like adopting cover crops which we need um, like adopting no-till those are complex management changes that really change a lot about how the farm operates and it's going to be pretty tough to force somebody to do that. Um, so we really focus on the positive side of the benefits of doing that and figuring out how to support the farmer in doing that and creating the system that um, makes it easy for all farmers to do that rather than just right now where it's like the very strong early adopters are figuring it out, but the rest of the sector is having a harder time. Uh, I think I saw a question in the back. Please identify yourself. Toby Jansen-Smith with Vera. Um, I won't take the Green New Deal. Maybe I'll leave that to my colleagues here. But uh, the second question uh, in terms of oh, the, the question about basically addressing uh, inequities uh, through the, these, that these market mechanic mechanisms can generate. Absolutely, you have to take that into strong account. I mean, whenever you have a flexible mechanism that allows any means or a variety of means to achieve a goal and potentially any ge geographic implementation to achieve that goal, you can get these imbalances or unintended consequences. So a couple of ways that gets dealt with. One, it can be dealt with in the design. So you can actually you know, set parameters around what's acceptable, what's covered, what kinds of offset projects could occur. As Craig mentioned, and I think Maggie too, on the ag side, 
one of the great things about market mechanisms is it actually can drive finance to projects that address these kinds of issues. So, you know, uh, communities of color or disadvantaged communities or agricultural, you know, marginalized agricultural, you know, in the rural poor or whatever, where you could actually not see climate benefits or finance flowing to those areas. Um, but with a market mechanism, you can actually do projects that target social inequity or, or other potential losers in the system. Um, and then also, as Craig said, you know, it, it, this isn't all addressed through the, the cap and trade itself or the the market mechanism, a lot of these uh, these issues in an, of inequity, for example, you have to address through the regulatory side of things. And as Greg said, you know, in the case of CO2, it's not that CO2 is a problem, but it would be maybe the particulates or other pollutants that are a point source health problem. Um, and you can address that through a variety of other means outside of the market mechanism. Craig Ebert. Uh I think the, the Green New Deal is rather silent on the specifics, but I, I wanted to just also address the equity question. Uh, you know, I, I, Scott is, is correct in pointing out, you know, this is sound like a point-counterpoint market mechanisms versus not. And he's absolutely right when there's a, a degree of certainty that we have, we know the technologies, we know what the problem is. You know, a, a regulatory approach is exactly the way to deal with things like lead or mercury. Market-based solutions, uh, can actually help address some of those equity situations, but they're most appropriate when we honestly don't know what the solution set looks like. And again, I'll come back to the climate change issue. We don't know what all the answers are, you know, but we need to start sending the signal to all of us, to the market, that uh, greenhouse gases need to be controlled. Now, uh, Toby made, made the point in particular that you know, you know, carbon taxes can be very regressive. And, and, and Scott, you're absolutely correct. It's often lost in the noise. And if you think about what a carbon tax is, it's a, a legislator, a regulator, deciding that they're going to put a cost of X on something. They have no idea what the environmental outcome is going to be. A cap and trade program is just the opposite. It's setting the environmental performance and then they, they let the market decide what the costs are going to be. I mean, there's all, honestly oversight about making sure costs don't get too high or too low. But from an equity standpoint, I'll just use, again, California's uh, you know, cap and trade program as a case in point. Some of these uh, you know, uh, pollution problems we're talking about with water pollution are being addressed through the cap and trade program because we've got uh, offset projects going in at, at uh, major dairy farms and, and, uh, and, and, and hog operations to basically control all the effluent and actually use it to, to produce uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, carbon credits that way. But it's a contained management system that minimizes a lot of the, the uh, water impacts that uh, often affect you know, lower income communities. And if any of you have ever been downwind of an uncontrolled, you know, hog farm or dairy farm, you, you know what I'm talking about in terms of just some of the, the, the noxious aspects of that. So you're absolutely right. You, you can't overlook some of those equity issues, uh, regardless of what your, what your approach is. But in, in no way, shape or form should one assume that market based mechanisms overlook that because they don't. Craig Eber, and the question was, are there limits that often put on the amount of credits that a, a major polluting entity can buy? And isn't that sort of a, a regulatory approach anyway? Uh, of course it is. A market-based system is also a regulatory approach. You know, it's, it's collectively, uh, you know, society making a decision that it's going to take this, this uh, approach. So, again, in the case of California, currently uh, the use of carbon offsets are limited to 8% of a, of a facility's compliance obligation. In 2021, it drops to 4 
uh, goes back up to six in 2026. I won't go into the details of that. So, uh, you know, you can address that. But again, keep in mind that when we're talking about a, a carbon credit or an offset, it's nothing more than a direct emission reduction elsewhere. And what's most critical, uh, you know, when Scott says he doesn't know what, what these credits mean, uh, that's a problem. If he doesn't know where they're coming from and what they mean, there's a standards problem. You've got to have rigorous, very transparent, very publicly accessible information on what, where that uh, activity, that credit is coming from, and to be able to prove that it's happened. And, and like they said, in the case of carbon credits, it's nothing more than a direct emission reduction elsewhere. If it's methane at a, at a hog farm or a, a collection of ODS substances or whatever it might be, we can demonstrate that. It's clear, clearly additional to activities that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And it often, as I said earlier, benefits a lot of lower income communities. Um, please identify yourself. Scott Edwards from um, Food and Water Watch. I, I don't know the particulars of the bill. I, I think the one is, you're, you're, it's modeled under um, Citizens Climate Lobby CCL's fee and dividend program. Fee and dividend is, is a carbon tax. Um, the dividend is the tax. Um, it is a, you can have revenue raising taxes, you can have revenue neutral taxes. This is an attempt to create a revenue neutral carbon tax and they call it a fee and dividend. Um, it is designed to, to address some of the regressivity, the inequity, um, it, um, and raise the revenue to fund. Uh, and so it's got some, some things in it that, that look to address some of the problems with a carbon tax uh, of regressivity. Um, one of the issues that, that we see with even a fee and dividend approach is if the goal of a tax is to drive consumer choices about energy and, and use of carbon and carbon emissions, and, and you're putting a financial burden, you're using the marketplace, putting a financial burden on consumers so that they make their choices. Um, if you're rebating those expenditures, you've pretty much defeated the purpose of the tax, at least for a segment of the population that's getting the rebate and the dividend. So what's the incentive for me to reduce my consumption of gasoline if every expenditure I make, I'm getting it back at, by, from the government at the end of the, the, the cycle. I'm, I'm being rebated, right? So I'm, it's not a financial burden on me when I'm getting rebated. No, it's not yeah. Well, it, it does for lower income and for middle income. So, so under CCL's program, um, depending on what the, in, so up, people of a higher income will not get the rebate and will not get the, the dividend back. Unless the bill's different than CCL's model. Uh, thank you. I'm Toby Jensen, Smith Farah. So the question is about uh, setting appropriate caps and making sure that you actually achieve the intended reductions and you have meaningful impact. So I think, as we've said, you know, the cap is the cap, and so that's going to achieve that stated reduction as long as you have good standards and transparency, et cetera, which are key. Um, but the big question is, how? Where should that cap be set? And you make the point that. You know, it could be set very loosely. Maybe there's industry lobbying for that. You know, exactly the same as a commodity control regulation, right, where industry would lobby to kill something or weaken it. The same thing can happen, of course, with cap and trade. I would say, and this is a point I made earlier, that with market-based mechanisms, we do see this quite widely, it's much easier to get industry support for a given outcome because of the flexibility so that different entities can move at different paces using different technologies. Um, and so we've seen that widely in California and other places where 
where it's more likely that regulators get industry on side for a given or a more aggressive environmental outcome if there are flexible mechanisms. But then you absolutely have to just make sure they're tight enough and not just starting tight, but where do they go over time? And that's the other trick is to be able to revisit like California and Europe does is, is to be ratcheting down that cap as far and fast as possible. And it's not an exact science, right? I mean, if you go too far, you can blow the whole system up in the economy. And if you go too loose, you know, you know, get squeeze out the, the best reductions. So I don't think there's a simple answer here, but I would say that the problems you mentioned are just as prevalent, if not more so with regular regulations. And at least in market-based mechanisms, there's in many cases there can be more transparency because at least you know what that outcome is is going to achieve. It's very transparent. That's the cap. And if the NGOs and other critics say that's not um, not it's not going to get us to where we need to go, that is a very clear, easy to communicate statement rather than an arcane set of regulations that people say, oh, it may or may not, or trust us, it'll do the job. Uh, anybody want to respond? Uh, did we have another question? Uh, in the back, please identify yourself. Uh, Maggie Monist, um, the question was about how do you um, put pressure on companies to create lower carbon products that are still low cost? Um, and I would say in the, the mainstream um, uh, food system, that's what's happening right now, you know. So there are a lot of um, you know niche products, right? Like you go to Whole Foods, you can you can pay more for different environmental services that you want to support. Um, but where the conversation is going with the WalMarts and the Smithfields and the Tysons and the Land O'Lakes and Kellogg's and General Mills of the world is more how do you improve your supply chain while maintaining um, a low price for the consumer. And that's tough. Um, <laughs> it's it's not easy. Um, and so you know, right now, um, you know, and it's a commodity market by and large, um, and folks aren't paying more for um, uh, for those commodities, but they are investing. Um, so I would make that distinction really clear. You know, uh, um, uh, I'll use the example of Smithfield. I've worked with them to set their greenhouse gas reduction goal, which was the first by a major meat company. Um, and they're working both to improve practices in their grain supply as well as on their hog farms. Um, they're not paying more for their grain, um, but they are spending money to hire agronomists, um, buy cover crop seed at a wholesale price, which they can um, because of their size, and provide it to farmers. Um, do new and interesting contracts with farmers for winter wheat, which uses um, less nutrients and keeps the soils covered throughout the winter. Um, so they're you know buying the winter wheat seed, providing it to farmers, providing them a guaranteed price for what they're going to receive. Um, I think you know they have met their their initial target for grain sustainability and they're continuing to do more and other companies are as well um, but i would say the jury's still out on whether um you know that model can really create the desired you know whole scale shift in um in the food system and so that's why you know we're working more broadly on policy with lenders with crop insurers um, because we think you know, the supply chain is creating a lot of um, interest and momentum, um, and they are spending money, um, but it's not, I think they can't do it alone. So we have to figure out how we, we shift the other um, components of that system to support them. Actually, I think we had a question on this side. Uh, can you identify yourself, please? I'm not a journalist. So. Uh, 
Okay. Do we have any more general? Uh, Dave. Um, Toby Jansen Smith Vera. So the question was. Um, if there's familiarity with the Plastic Bank um, and working with um, low-income communities, faith-based communities. Um, so yes, we at Vera are working right now with um, some of the leading corporates like Nestle, Danone, uh, Veolia, Tetra Pak, and Conservation International and others to basically develop a mechanism, uh, a plastic waste recovery and crediting mechanism, so basically similar to carbon, but to bring it to plastics to incentivize increased recovery and recycling and we're working with plastic bank as they're uh, they're um uh, basically a, an advisor uh in our standard development committee uh and they've done great work in the ground and on the ground in places like haiti um where they've used these early market-based mechanisms to actually drive finance from major corporates for example you know surfboard manufacturers or other um, consumer goods companies that want to go beyond their own supply chain and address plastic waste in key global hotspots like haiti or southeast asia um and as long as you have good standards and as long as there's transparency, it can be a very powerful model, you know, linking it to what Maggie was just saying about agricultural supply chains. You know, I, I think when you and we've mostly focused on this panel on regulatory uh, cap and trade or market mechanisms. But the fact is, a lot of the same approaches um, if, with crediting and offsetting, for example, apply in the voluntary space. They can be even more powerful there because typically companies that want to achieve a voluntary environmental outcome or goal, they want to be leaders. And most of them do whatever they can internally to reduce GHG emissions in, in their own footprint and supply chains, but they want to go beyond that and they want to touch communities maybe they engage in, they buy from, or stakeholder um, regions. Um, and they can do that through these offset projects, whether it's with plastic, whether it's with carbon, and achieve a stated environmental objective and a, usually a social and traditional environmental benefit. Um, and it allows them to go beyond what they could just do with their operations. And it's all voluntary. So it's not people may be critical and say, oh, it's offsetting. What we're saying, offsetting their way out of the problem, far from it. These leading corporates, they're actually the, the top leaders of recent research around this. There's, they're, they're the top leaders at driving internal reductions, but they want to go beyond that. So they move into their supply chains or um, you know, the areas where there's other environmental issues they could help address indirectly. I think we have time for one more question. Did I see a hand raised? Yes. Um, please identify yourself. Craig Ebert, Climate Action Reserve. Uh, the question ha uh, was around some of the equity concerns uh, where uh, basically uh, offsets are allowed or, or you know, credits rather than happening at a facility, say like the Richmond Refinery in California, happen elsewhere. And you specifically raised the question about the tropical forestry standard. Well, first of all, I just want to reiterate something I said earlier that this is not, the issues around the Richmond refinery are not caused by greenhouse gases. You know, it's just a misnomer. And there's, you know, we can have a broader discussion about that, but, you know, a lot of, you know, those EJ communities don't like the cap and trade program. And, and you know, what they're trying to do is ratchet down on, you know, the noxious uh, emissions coming out of the Richmond refinery. And that's fine, they should be doing that. You know, ultimately, the goal of, uh, of, of decarbonizing our economy is to shut the thing down, period. And that'll solve a lot of those concerns. I'm not sure it's going to address all of those local health issues, but, you know, uh, you know th that's where we need to go in terms of we being humanity, in terms of uh, creating a clean energy economy for the 21st century. 
The Tropical Four standard, let me deal with that in in a much broader context because there's also a raging debate just around the use of of forestry credits. It's like, how do we really, you know, verify uh, that it's happening? Uh, And there's no question there's significant challenges, but let's keep in mind what an improved forest management or tropical forestry standard protocol is trying to do. It needs to be rigorous. It needs to be transparent. But what we're we're suffering from now is that the value of a forest worldwide has historically been based typically on one thing alone, timber value. And uh, in the case of like, you know, like the Amazon, it's, it's not clear that it even has that. You know, they're looking at it as an alternative value for just clear cutting, burning it, and, and putting in agriculture. So we need to create a value with those other ecosystem credits. And, and a fundamental goal, and again, I, I'm want to emphasize just more generally the, the forestry protocol is rather than going from a system that we've had for many decades where all we care about is either the, the timber value or its potential conversion value to uh, condos or vineyards, the objective is to, you know, rather than allowing trees to grow and we get up to here, we cut it down and the quantity of carbon falls back to some lower baseline is to elevate it to a much higher level where we've got, again, what humanity has is a much larger, diverse, older ecosystem. You're still harvesting. We're not talking about having set-asides, but you you have a more productive system, you know, worldwide that, that is providing multiple benefits. That's the goal. And the tropical forestry standard, you know, it, you know, California's been looking at that rigorously for many years, and it's the same objective. If you don't create economic value for, for people in protecting the, the, the standing force, they're going to have zero value. And that's the objective behind, you know, the, the tropical forestry standard is to create that. And, and, in, and there is rigorous, uh, in, in the case, you know, the, the, the protocols that we use, there's independent third-party verification and there's very stringent requirements, you know, to prove that that happens. You know, and it's, it, we have a history now over the last, you know, few decades of, of doing a lot, a lot of these international offsets. And it's not an unblemished record by any stretch of the imagination. But it has accomplished, as I said at the outset, a lot of very positive things. And we're not going to get to a clean energy economy without, you know, incorporating essentially, you know, the cost of carbon. Uh, So this is partly related to the conversation earlier. Whether it's a command and control approach or a tax or a uh, cap and trade program, we all fear increasing prices. We all want everything on the cheap. Well, guess what? We're destroying the world with that attitude right now. We're going to have to pay something to get to a clean energy economy. And the question is how to do it most efficiently. And, and, you know, that's in a specific case of a cap and trade program. We're putting a specific value on on those other attributes and and trying to generate, you know, a lot of creative interest from many different directions. And and it's I think it's already, you know, uh, you know, shown uh, even with, you know, like I said, we've driven renewables powers to a very cost effective solution. We're not there yet. But the automakers are going to be bringing us non-carbon alternatives to market in scale very soon. We have to get there. And, and th- that's the only way to do it is to send that price signal. The companies are getting it. They're not waiting for the governments to tell them, thou shalt do this, thou shalt do that. They're uh, in the midst of a revolution to, to, to bring those cleaner vehicles to market. Okay. 
Uh, Scott, it looked like you wanted to respond, but we have a couple, yeah, we, just um, a couple minutes, <laughs> just, just, just one very minute. just quickly. <laughs> on, the, on the issue, and, and Craig's brought this up a, a couple of points, and, and it's right, right? It's not CO2 that's impacting local communities under a cap-and-trade program. It's co-pollutants, right? So when you allow a company to purchase credits to emit more CO2, they're also increasing other pollutants coming out of those stacks, and that's what the 2016 Berkeley study was based on, was co-pollutants and the follow-up 2017 study. And then I just want to say that, you know, the issue of, of offsets and, and credit purchasing, the inherent, the inherent goal of that is to allow one polluter to pollute more in the hope that some polluter somewhere else is polluting less, right? And, and you know, that sounds good if, if you're dealing with a truly global pollutant, perhaps, but, but when the rubber hits the road and you have accountability, verification, and local impacts from pollutants, whether it's co-pollutants or in the case of nutrient pollutants, where in, in the water pollution trading program you're sacrificing local stream segments in the hope of achieving downstream water quality somewhere, um, it does create lots of inequity, environmental justice issues that everybody, and, 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 and they're aware of those issues, and, and, and you know, it's, I think everybody who even are proponents of these are aware of the environmental justice issues. We don't think they can be solved and, and I think they think that they can be protected properly. Unfortunately, we are out of town. We're actually a little over, but please join me in thanking our speakers who will stick around and answer any follow-up questions.